So we are seeing some interesting demographic trends, but overall, you know, we're well above pre-COVID employment at this point. There's more jobs, more people working than we had before COVID. But how and where people work has changed. And so that is why I get asked all the time, like, where are all the workers? They're working, but things look different than they did before. Welcome to Shift Talk, where we talk about the workforce challenges and trends that manufacturers and those in the supply chain industry are facing every day. I'm your host, Adam Raymond. And in each episode, we'll bring you fun and in-depth conversations with industry experts and thought leaders who are on the front lines of frontline work. All right, so I'm here with Laura Ulrich from the Federal Reserve. And what I'd like to do is start off by having her introduce herself and tell a little bit about what your current role is at the Fed and, and what you do out in the field. Yeah, absolutely. Really happy to be here with you today. So I'm Laura Ulrich. I am the Senior Regional Economist for North and South Carolina for the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. I'm based in our Charlotte office. And my primary role is basically being a kind of a boots on the ground economist. So we're out and about every week talking to businesses, talking to leaders, both in industry, but it could also be community leaders, government officials about what they're actually seeing on the ground in real time in the economy. So we have economists that are doing more traditional academic research, and then we have kind of like an outreach economist team, and I'm on that team. I also do a lot of research at the bank on higher education, because that's Mm -hmm. my background. I was a professor and college administrator for 13 years prior to coming to the Fed in 2019. So to get started, why don't we begin with, there's this misconception that you know I hear this a lot. People just don't want to work. They're lazy. Mm -hmm. They they Mm -hmm. won't show up. But that doesn't seem to really be accurate in not only the data, but in what we see in the way people are working. Are you seeing the same thing? Like this (laughs) is a thing that exists, right? But I always joke about that when I present because, you know, I want to acknowledge that some of that, you know, there, there are people that are just choosing not to work or just choosing to be, quote, lazy. But that's not really what we see as the, like, primary drivers of why people don't work. One of the statistics that I find most interesting, it comes out every month in the payroll employment report. It's kind of buried. You have to dig in a little bit. But one of the things that the BLS puts out is the number of Americans who want to work Mm-hmm. but are not working and are not looking for a job. So if I ask a group of people, if I ask a group of business leaders, right. who, why would people say, I want a job, but I'm not working and I'm not looking for work? The response I get back is they're lazy. Right. But if you really dig in deeper and start looking at some of the research, instead, really, it is more probably about these non-skill barriers to work. So mm-hmm. things like child care, child care, or one. transportation, yes. or disability that, I mean, we can get into a bit about what you guys mm-hmm. are doing, but some people, you may find it difficult. Maybe they don't have a disability that's severe enough for them to actually get disability insurance payments, but maybe it's hard for them to stay on their feet for 12 hours straight, right? I mean, there's, right. there's all sorts of reasons why people might say, I want to work, but you know what, I'm a mom of three and I know I can't afford childcare, so why look? Or I have right. a criminal background and I've tried for three years before and, and I couldn't find anything, so what, what's the use, right? The kind of concept of these discouraged workers. So that's really the group that I'm especially interested in because I think as we grow employment, we have to find a way to get these, it's 5 million people, like how do we get these people engaged that are saying, mm-hmm. I want to work, but... That, that's yeah. kind of where my interests lie. I'm going to be interviewing Bill Good mm-hmm. from GE Appliances, and they're looking for ways to make work fit 
the employee instead of the mm-hmm. employee fit the work. Are you seeing more organizations starting to adopt that philosophy? Yes, I think so. Slowly but surely, I would say there are some people that I talk to that I would say are kind of on the front line of this that are willing to be kind of risk takers and say like, mm-hmm. hey, let's try to do something really different. Whereas some companies are like, we're just going to get everybody back into this little box and it's right. going to work out this way. But I think the demographic shifts that are happening at the same time, all of this other stuff that's going on mm-hmm. is going to require that companies um, make those adjustments because it used to be, you know, I was reading a article re- uh, book recently about um, unionization in the United States and was talking mm-hmm. about when in the South, when, when unions, when they moved to being basically right to work states and, 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 you know, at that time there was a plethora of workers. And so if, if a bunch of employees tried to unionize, there were times where companies literally got rid of everyone everyone, yep. and just said, we'll hire another thousand people tomorrow. Yep. Well, that those days are gone. That's done that in, except in very rare circumstances. So so now companies are going to have to be more mindful of how to make their work and their their companies, I think, more attractive to to workers because because of the demographics. Yeah, I wanted to unpack that a little more. A lot of people, again, attribute that to the pandemic mm-hmm. and are optimistic that mm-hmm. things are just going to return to the way they are. They were unemployment's going to go back to seven, eight percent and they can have more leverage in the hiring process to say, mm-hmm. this is the job, take it or leave it. We're not making concessions. Do, do you see that going back to that type of mm-hmm. workforce environment? Or do you get the sense that newer generations and once workers have some of these benefits and flexibility that that there's no going back? What, right. what do you think? So I think it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. So I certainly think there is the possibility that unemployment rates go up at some mm-hmm. point, right? We, um, we may we may have a self-landing this time and not have a recession, but we will have another recession sometime in the future and unemployment rates will go up. But those are short-term blips, right? I think the longer-term view on labor, in my opinion, of course, this is mm-hmm. my view, not necessarily the, the federal, doesn't reflect the Federal Reserve's view, but the my view on, on longer term labor is that it's tight. There's just not as many people. We, as a percent of the t- total population that will be working, we knew this was coming. We know about the baby boomer generation. We know how old they are, right? We've been a, we've known this cliff was coming for a long mm-hmm. time. And um, higher ed, we would talk about the 2025 cliff because fertility rates really fell off in 2007. So we knew starting in 2025, there are fewer people graduating from high school every year. Hmm college enrollment overall in the United States has been falling since 2010 because of these demographic shifts. So so we know all of that. Right. What happened, though, was that the pandemic accelerated some of that, right? Some of the baby boomers left sooner than expected. Mm-hmm. And it also accelerated trends that were already happening with younger workers and it accelerated those as well, right? So we saw a shift in the Great Recession where men, young men, especially preferred part-time work. That is typical during a recession because all you can find is part-time work possibly, right? Right. So people move towards part-time employment. Typically though, after a recession, you would see people return more to a preference for full-time work. We never really saw that full return. Hmm. And so some of these trends we, we could already see in the data, some of this research was already being done before the pandemic. And I think the pandemic just accelerated it, right? 
and it, and it allowed people who maybe did prefer a more flexible environment or did prefer part, multiple part-time jobs or whatever, the ability to do that. Yeah. So what's the sense you're getting from graduating students mm-hmm. or those who are going maybe not to a four-year mm-hmm. graduate program that are going right into the workforce? You know, What's your outlook on their ability to get good paying jobs mm-hmm. to have a career what you know what's the sense you're getting from students and from employers about this new generation yes yeah, so my interest as an economist really is in the pipeline from k through 12 education to the workforce so i view it as this pipeline that has mm-hmm. many exits so some people exit the pipe right out of high school right or right. even before they graduate high school if they drop out mm-hmm. and go into the workforce some might do a really short-term certificate and exit. Some might do a year-long certificate. Some might go to two-year school so and get an associate. Some might go to four-year school. Some might be like me and be ridiculous and go to school forever. But <laughs> but there's all these exits, right? Exits can all result in positive outcomes in theory. Hmm. There are jobs that you can get at each of these exits that could right. provide you with a family-sustaining wage. Of course, research tells us the longer you stay in the pipeline, the higher the probability that you get one of those jobs, right? Right. The bigger problem to me is that the pipe is leaking at the bottom. <laughs> so instead of people exiting, they're falling out the bottom. And, and one of the reasons I say that about people exiting like high school right now into the workforce, there are amazing problem, programs out there. You can go and get a job as an elevator mechanic apprentice. Mm-hmm. And with right out of high school, no experience, no technical right. degree. And within a few years, be making six figures. You can go get a very short-term certificate just for a few weeks and double or triple your wage. The problem, though, is that we don't see people rushing to do these things. So it's hard for elevator companies to find people that want to be elevator mechanics, right. even though that provides a, a very good family-sustaining wage. And so what I'm really interested in and try to really focus on in my research is how do we keep the leaks from happening? Um, And part of that is that we have had, and of course, this comes from somebody that has a PhD that worked in four-year higher ed most of my career until four years ago. So take what I'm going to say with a grain of salt. But we have had too much focus on everybody. You know, it's like four-year college or bust. Mm. You're either college bound or right. you're kind of quote a failure, right? Or you right. haven't succeeded. And what that has done, I think, is discourage some people from taking these other exits in the pipe and cause them just to leak out the bottom. So I think everybody, companies need to do a better job. Mm. K through 12 needs to do a better job. Researchers need to do a better job to put this stuff out there. Right. The society needs to do a better job of really respecting all the exits on the pipe and saying, hey, yeah. There's lots of ways to be successful. Pick one. They're right. all great, right? And and that's not really how we've how we've done things in the past. No, I, I agree with that sentiment. The same thing we see in manufacturing. Manufacturers haven't done a great job of branding themselves mm-hmm. for a new generation, right? There's still this stigma of, oh, I'm gonna go work in a hot difficult right. job for 12 Dangerous. hours a yeah. day. It's da- There's no career path. And when you walk into some of these newer facilities, mm-hmm. we just toured one last week that manufactures solar cells. Hmm. And it's incredible. It's, it's incredibly high tech. They have a, a 
plethora of advancement opportunities to learn robotics and engineering. You think of this job as just, oh, I'm going to be on an assembly line for 10 hours. They really are looking to upskill their workforce. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing that as a theme as well, is that companies are looking to the workers they have to say, how do we connect better with them and their needs, but also look for ways to upskill and advance their career path. Yes, we we do hear that. And we do hear about really good industry partnerships between manufacturers and community colleges where the community colleges come in and teach specific skills. I think part of the issue, though, and this gets back to you talking about kind of the different attitudes of, of different businesses. If your attitude is that people just don't want to work, people are lazy, people right. don't want jobs, then you're going to approach your employees and the policies around the employment very different than if you're, mm. than if your attitude is, hey, we're going to, you know, all of these are people, they all have issues going on. We're kind of meet them where they are and try to figure right. out how do we get these people to produce this product right. in a way that works for us and works for them. Um, and so I think that people that have that viewpoint about their employees are going to be much more eager to do something like upskilling. Whereas if your attitude is everybody is lazy and don't, doesn't want to work, yeah. why would you want to upskill them anyway? What's the point, right? Right. So They're I do expendable. think, it, They're not yeah, stay that's around. right. That's right. So I think that it still takes that, that kind of open-mindedness about, about what's going on and, and why there are shifts and generational shifts are tough, right? I mean, I'm the mom <laughs> of three teenage boys and half yes. of what they do and say, I'm like, I, I don't even know. I, I mean, I told my 19 year old the other day, I said, is did was X good or bad? I'm chilling. I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. <laughs> That's you know, fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like something like, on fire. Right? Like, what's going exactly. on? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, no. It's, it's. I don't understand them. But that doesn't mean that the way they want to operate, right, as humans in a society and as workers, is necessarily bad. It just looks different. And so adjusting that for me is tough, right? So I understand the challenges that employers have with that, but I do think with the changing demographics and the generational shifts, it's just going to have to happen. Like they, they have a completely different way of viewing Mm -hmm. what work means to them Mm -hmm. and the balance they want to have between how much time they're willing to spend at a career and how much time they're going to spend on them, which in, in some ways... I'm kind of envious. I know, exactly. (laughs) Well, and we hear a lot about people now, younger workers, like working to a number. Like, hey, I know my budget. With my budget, I need to make $1,500 a month. Right. So I'm going to get out there and hustle and make $1,500 as fast as I can this next month. And then I'm done, you know, for the month until I have to do it again. (laughs) And we hear this from from employers that have often relied on a lot of overtime from workers that early in the month, right. we can get people, you know, to, to work overtime, but later in the and month, then, it's very, <laughs> very difficult. Yeah. And, but in what a different frame of mind, right? Like working towards a number just versus, Hey, I'm going to work as many hours as I can make as much money as right. I can, um, which is how I think uh, my generation uh, operates. Um, so yeah, I, there's probably, there's definite positives in that attitude shift there, but it makes it hard for employers. Educating kids on what their options are right. instead of it just being, well, you're either working at McDonald's or you're a brain surgeon. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and and that 
changing the way we think about, okay, how do we get it instead of just taking in high school, all these random electives, are there ways we could get kids credentials to where when they leave high school, if nothing else, maybe they're OSHA safety certified or right. they're, you know, some of these things that an employer or a manufacturer would love. Mm -hmm. um, and I think credentials, the credential part is really yes. important to have something in your hand that says, hey, I know how to do X, whatever X is. I think really it comes important. back to what, again, you were saying before that some industries are really good and adept mm -hmm. at catering to a new type of like, look at the mm -hmm. tech and absolutely uh, development industry right nine times out of ten they don't care if you have a computer right. science master's right. degree they're going to say can you sit down and write mm -hmm. this you know 30 lines of code and debug it great you're hired here's mm -hmm. two hundred thousand dollars a year <laughs> and you can work anywhere in the world i don't know what <laughs> what i did wrong i know 15 right years ago that i didn't right. start right. on that path right. right but to your point the same thing even for manufacturers and other industries that are not thought of as, hey, this is an opportunity for you to get skilled in robotics or engineering, machine operation. There's a lot of technology and certifications out there that, to your point, students could be taking as early as you know, middle to early yes, high early. school yeah. to get a sense of, do I even like this? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, mm -hmm. You and I both know nine times out of 10, what we kind of envisioned oh, we would right. be doing. Right. No, <laughs> doesn't usually work out. Exactly. Let's just exactly. say it that way. Um, well, and there are cool programs. So there's a program um, in Yadkin and Surrey counties in North Carolina, Central North Carolina, that they actually got the state law changed in North Carolina to allow hmm. 16 and 17 year olds to work in manufacturing facilities. And they have a program where these students go and work and get paid right. to work in manufacturing facilities. And at the same time, they get they get some certifications. I think they get oh, five different certifications mm -hmm. um, in the program. They get some community college credits. Um, the county also mm -hmm. gives them $250 a month stipend to pay for gas, transportation, things like that. That's and it's going phenomenally well. A huge percentage right. of these students are actually choosing to stay with the manufacturers. And, and they did that there because they were having a lot of like kind of brain drain. Um, and, mm -hmm. and a lot of kind of disaffected youth in their communities. And so it's like, how can we get people engaged in the industry that's here? And it's going really well for them. Um, they're seeing tremendous outcomes. But the question is like, how do you scale something like that? Right. I was just going to say that. It, yeah. Yes. How do you make it where it's not just helping a hundred, I think they've got about 150 kids a year, which is a lot in those counties. So yeah, I'm not diminishing is. that. But how do you put something together where like all students could potentially benefit from something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and, and I do think that educators, uh, education in general is just like you said, the tech industry moves fast. Education does not, as you and I both okay. know. And so some communities are, are moving forward faster than others, but it, I do think it's going to be really, really important as, as we move forward. How you're using that to educate business mm -hmm. leaders, educators, you know, in the things that we're discussing, how do you get the word out? Yeah. So it's funny when I, I never thought I would leave higher ed and I loved academia and I especially loved the classroom. And when I left, it was like a, a shock to me that <laughs> that even happened, but it was great. It's been a great transition for me. But one of the things I do love about my job is I really still am out there teaching people. Right. So yeah. whether it's through a podcast or a presentation or something I'm writing, um, I still am teaching 
So yeah, you mentioned the TV show. I've been um, guest hosting Carolina Business Review, which comes on all the um, PBS stations. Actually, I think the second one I taped um, debuts tonight. I can't watch it myself. It's wonderful, but I'll have my husband watch it and tell me how it goes. But that's been great uh, because that, I think, does allow me to interact with some people that I wouldn't maybe Mm -hmm. typically interact with um, and learn more about what's going on in the Carolinas. Um, And then we are doing a lot of work in the community college space, specifically the rural community college space. And as part of that, we, I mean, right before I hopped on this podcast this morning, I was writing an article about pandemic funds expiring to community colleges. So I'm writing Mm -hmm. constantly. And so, you know, I feel like my job is both to take in information, which we use all that information we hear from businesses, from, you know, mayors, whoever we're talking Mm -hmm. to. And I did use in part of the FOMC process as our president goes to FOMC meetings. But I also feel like a big part of my job is also taking the other insights I get and putting them out into the world. Um, Because the reality is that there are a lot of viewpoints that are missed in traditional research. And this isn't anybody's fault. It's not intentional. But it's very difficult to get the insights. You know, I was talking about those 5 million people that say they want to work but are not working. It's hard to get to those. Like, who are they, right? It's hard. What are the barriers people have to be able to get mm-hmm. in the labor force? Um, I think it's really important. And, and thankfully, the, the Richmond Fed agrees with me uh, that, that you yeah. know, they're very encouraging for us to find those stories and, and get them out to the public. Well, that's, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. And that's what I found really intriguing is people think Federal Reserve all you guys do is set interest rates and <laughs> talk in language that you need a master's degree to decode. Um, <laughs> but I was really fascinated with just how much time you spend in the community, talking with employers, talking with workers, talking with economic development mm-hmm. groups, trying to get this message out of, hey, we have the data, but we also have the intrinsic feedback from people saying, this is how we want to work. And we're not finding those opportunities. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I will mention one project, big project we're working on, yeah, which please. is actually a community college survey where we're trying to change the definition of success for community colleges. Long story short, the federal government measures it the exact same way for, for four-year schools and community colleges, which just doesn't work um, because students like students who have just started um at schools like my son goes to a private liberal arts school, they're all there to get a bachelor's degree. That's the point of being there. But a community right. college, there can be many other reasons to be there. So we have changed the definition of success to be. Um, and actually, let me say, like a community college also doesn't get credit for that success, even if somebody transfers, unless they graduate first, then transfer, right? right. As I was talking about that pipeline, it doesn't value the beginning part of the pipeline. It's really just that two-year degree forward. So we're changing it to be defined as if a student comes to a community college and graduates or transfers mm-hmm. to a four-year school at any time. So after a semester, a year, two years, we don't care, yeah. gets a credential or industry-recognized licensure or persists for four years or more, we count them as a success. And oh, um, we'll do a fantastic. full release here in November of our result. But what we're seeing that's interesting is once we change this definition of success, the, gra- the, the rate then kind of mirrors the four-year college rate. <laughs> Students are succeeding. They're just right. not succeeding based on our old definition. I, I recently heard somebody say what gets measured gets managed, which I agree. Mm-hmm. If you show students and employees that any of these things, getting a credential, getting a licensure, 
transferring, whatever. These are all successes. This is all great stuff. And you manage that in an appropriate way, then you're going to see people be more successful in the labor force. I love hearing that. We'll have to catch back up in November. Yeah, absolutely. So how can people connect with you if they'd like to follow up? Yeah, so always love to have people find me on LinkedIn, but also you can find my research on the website, richmondfed.org. And we specifically have, if you, if you go to the topic link there, you can find our work on community colleges. If you're interested in that, we put, publish all of our work there. Great. Well, thank you so much, Laura. And thanks again for coming on our show. Thanks for having me. It's been great. <laughs>